So I'll add our welcome to John's. My name is Sharon Salzberg, and this is uh, Miyoshin Kelly sitting next to me. And down below is Susan O'Brien, and then at the end is Joseph Goldstein. And we'll be uh, leading this retreat together. Various of us will be sitting up here at different times, so you'll get to see the people that you can't see quite yet, because <laughs> they're down below. It's really a wonderful time for us to be able to be gathered here together. Yesterday, Valentine's Day, is also IMS's anniversary, and yesterday was our 26th anniversary. I always say it's a good thing we moved in on Valentine's Day because we'd remember when that was. So we're all, I think, feeling quite uh, moved by this institution, the fact that it's uh, still here 26 years later, that people come to practice, that there's so much beauty and sincerity that happens here and everywhere. Um, and to, to feel the gathering of everyone's energy on a night such as this is very special. I often think about that quality of energy when we all come together, the, the sheer physical energy that each of you has expended in traveling and making arrangements and, and the kind of psychological, emotional energy and being able to let go of your families, your home situation, your jobs, and and come here. All of the energy that may have been generated of eager anticipation and delight at the thought of meditation and all of the energy that might have been generated by the the anxiety or the dread, you know, of, oh no, what's it going to be like seven days? And somehow this gathering all of us together, is a representation of the gathering of all of that energy because all of that is a part of of our truth, the truth of our experience. I know many of you have been practicing meditation for quite a long time and that many of you have not, that you don't have very much experience in formal meditation practice. In some way, I think it actually there is actually very little difference. There's a quality of mind of feeling that one is at the beginning, that one is really a beginner, that is very beautiful and I think helpful for embarking on a retreat such as this. When we're at the beginning of something, we don't necessarily have the same kind of judgments. Well, you know, I shouldn't have that feeling or that experience, because after all, you know, I've been practicing for so long, or I'm so wise, or I'm so sophisticated, and, you know, I had nice feelings yesterday for five minutes, so today I should have them for 15, and, you know, that whole wealth of expectation and judgment, and then likely self-condemnation and comparison, we can let go of all that, and have the, the openness of mind and the, the tenderness of being a beginner, that sense of wonder, of of embarking on an adventure. I think we need that no matter what the degree of our actual meditation experience formally is. You'll hear many stories probably about one of our meditation teachers, a Burmese master named Saira Upandita. Saira is the Burmese word for teacher. We invited Saira Upandita here in 1984 to lead a three-month retreat. And many of us, 
most of us actually had never met him before inviting him. We found ourselves, the day after his arrival, entering a three-month retreat under his guidance. He turned out to be a very strict, rather fierce, intense, determined teacher, much to my surprise and often chagrin. He also had a certain kind of teaching style, which was quite interesting. He, we were seeing him in that retreat six days a week for interviews, discussions about our meditation practice. And he had this kind of teaching habit of repeating the exact same thing day after day, no matter what happened in the course of the interview. He would say his thing, and then he would leave and come in the next day, and he would say the same thing until something would shift inside of you, and then he would move on to something else. So we got into this routine, he and I. Um, By that time, 1984, I'd been practicing pretty devotedly for about 14 years, and I would go in to see him for my meditation interview, and I would describe my experience, and he would look at me and say, well, in the beginning it can be like that. And I'd think, I'm not a beginner. I've been practicing for 14 years. What does he mean? But that would be it. That would be my entire interview. So I'd leave and come back the next day and maybe describe something completely different. And he would look at me and say, in the beginning it can be like that. And I'd think, not a beginner. And I'd leave and I'd come back the next day and I'd say something. And he would say, well, in the beginning it can be like that. And I felt like there was this giant neon 14 flashing in my brain toward him. Like, I'm not a beginner. I've been practicing for 14 years. And one day I left his room and I thought, why do we bring him all the way from Burma? You know, like people say he's such a great teacher. He never says anything. (laughs) All he ever says is, well, in the beginning, it can be like that. And then, of course, one day something settled inside me in a different way. And I did get it. I thought, oh, it's good to be a beginner. It's good to be open-hearted. It's good not to have fixed ideas, rigid determinations, heavy expectations. To be a beginner, to, to be willing to see, okay, what is the truth of this moment, and to let it change, to let it unfold. It's a really wonderful attitude to be bringing to the practice. There are many skills that we work on developing here. This particular retreat being about metta meditation or loving kindness. <clears throat> the, the set of skills centers around that particular practice. One of the main skills is that of concentration. Metta or loving kindness is said to be a concentration practice. And here again we have that same theme of gathering. Those of you who are experienced in meditation might think back to your last meditation session. And those of you who aren't might think back to the last time you sat down to try to think your way through a dilemma, really resolve it, see through to the bottom of it. Most commonly what we experience is that our attention settles on the object of our meditation or contemplation rather briefly (laughs) and before we know it we are gone the mind has jumped far back into the past to some time where 
we feel, we feel kind of uneasy recollecting that incident where we blurted something out and it, it made everybody quite uncomfortable, or we kept silent in a situation where it would have been the braver thing to actually speak out. The mind just goes there 10 years ago. Or we find ourselves speculating about an endless future. We create an entire world that has not happened and may never happen. And yet we create it so carefully that we find ourselves carrying the burden of it. There's a wonderful quotation from Mark Twain who said something like, some of the worst things in my life never happened. You know, the mind just runs into the future. and That is the very common experience. That's how, in a way, in a sense, that's how we've been trained. The act of concentration is learning how to gather our energy back. If you, if you feel your way into that experience, whether you were meditating or you were thinking, you were contemplating, and you feel the quality of the energy in that time, when we're scattered, when we're dispersed, when we're distracted. It's a huge amount of energy. But it's not really available to us because we're throwing it all away, all over the place. The act of concentration is learning how to gather it back and gather it back so that it is returned to us. The path of concentration is said to be the path first of power, of empowerment, because That is a lot of energy. And when it is ours again, when it's come together, no longer dispersed, then we are empowered because we can make use of it. And it's also considered to be the path of healing because even like the movement of my hands and gathering the energy in is a movement toward unification, toward wholeness of our being instead of being so fragmented, so cut apart in so many ways. It's the path to, to the integrity of our being, to wholeness. And this, for me, when I first began practicing meditation, was very much what I saw in the Buddha, in the image of the Buddha, in the symbol of the Buddha. For me, he represented a completely integrated being, whereas I and most of the people I knew led rather fragmented lives. You know, we might be one way when we're all alone and another way when we're with people. One way at work and another way at home. I saw the Buddha as a symbol of somebody who was who he was. His being had come together. And the threads of wisdom and compassion, awareness and loving kindness ran through his life in any circumstance, whether it was being alone in solitude, or teaching, wandering. So that's the effect of learning how to concentrate. Concentration as a practice is not what we might think it is. It's not a question of grim determination or harshly judging ourselves, but rather learning the rather unusual skill of being able to let go of distraction and gather our energy by beginning again. We learn to let go and begin again over 
and over and over. That's how the empowerment of the mind happens. That's how the, the integration of our being happens. Somebody once asked Michelangelo how he would carve an elephant, and he said, I would take a large piece of stone and then take away everything that was not the elephant. So that, in a sense, is what we're doing. We have an object of concentration, which will be the practice of of metta, of loving-kindness, and we let go. We learn to let go happily, to relinquish, to open, because everything else is not the elephant. This has nothing to do with judging oneself or punishing oneself. The extraordinary thing about a practice that is based on always beginning again is that we realize we can always begin again. There is nowhere your mind can go, into the past, into the future, some far, far kingdom. It doesn't matter. Always we have the capacity to let go and begin again. In some ways, I think one of the things I've always appreciated about meditation practice is that the big lessons come in very little packages. It's like a fractal, really, of life. To be able to let go of distraction, gather your energy back, implies a lot. It implies being able to forgive yourself, having some compassion for yourself, having faith in the incredible renewing power of being able to begin again. So huge transformations happen from very simple acts. Without being dogmatic without giving yourself a lecture about how important and appropriate compassion and forgiveness and renewal would be, just in the practice, in almost like a cellular level, this is how we change, this is how we learn. And the other skill, of course, is metta itself. Metta, the word emblazoned above our uh, front door, is in the Pali language, Pali being the language of the original Buddhist texts. It's usually translated as loving-kindness. One of my great hopes has always been that somehow the word metta itself will seep into the culture because it's so hard to translate to get quite a sense of of just what it means. Loving-kindness is very close, but it's not a common word. You know, you don't often hear or overhear conversations going on in the street somewhere. You know, people use the word loving-kindness. Sometimes it's translated as love, but that's a very tricky word also. It's very complex. We can mean many, many things when we say the word love. Sometimes we say love, and we really do mean attachment. We mean a medium of exchange that's very conditional, and it's very fragile. It's, I will love you as long as the following 15 conditions are met. Or I used that example once and somebody said, only 15? <laughs> that doesn't seem nearly enough. Or I will love you as long as you love me in return. And that, that medium of exchange, because of its dependency, because of the quality of fearfulness that is part of it, is not really what's meant by metta. Sometimes we use the word love 
to mean a kind of sentimentality, which is actually like an ally of delusion, where everything difficult and painful and conflicted and terrible will be covered over with a very nice veneer so that everything just looks okay and pleasant and sweet. And here again, that is not at all what is meant by metta, which is considered a power, it's a force. It's not having to do with, with delusion or looking the other way or, or not paying attention. If, if anything, it's the finest attribute of attention or awareness. Probably the most literal translation of the word metta is friendship. So it means developing the art of friendship for oneself, and that means all aspects of oneself, not just those parts of ourselves that we like and we kind of proudly present to the world, but those parts of ourselves we're not so very familiar with that are a little bit hidden from us, from our view, and those parts of ourselves that we're very uncomfortable with, all of that to be held in in the context of, of friendship. And then ultimately friendship for all of life, for all beings everywhere, without exception, without distinction, and without condition. I think we all have a sense of what this quality of unconditioned love can be like, either because we've been very fortunate, really blessed, and have been the recipient, or because we felt the lack of it, but we know what it could be in this world. So here we're talking about not just being the recipient, but being able to generate that. Because according to the Buddhist teaching, this quality of love, of connection, of care, of compassion is inherent to our being as a capacity. That each of us, no matter who we are, what we've been through, have within us this potential for this tremendous depth of connection, and that that potential can never be destroyed. It may be covered over, it may be something we're out of touch with, it may be something we don't trust very much, but it's there. And so we practice this kind of meditation very much in that spirit, not to try to force something to happen or make ourselves into... Um, kind of automatons pretending that we're, we're pleased when really we're suffering. We practice this kind of meditation to come close to that capacity and to nurture it, because we can. That's why the practice of metta meditation can be kind of fun. It can be not fun, too. But to some degree, we have a choice. If you practice with a lot of expectation... And especially if you define metta or loving-kindness as a feeling, a certain emotion that you're supposed to be having, and maybe you're not having it, maybe everyone else in the room is having it, but you're not having it, you know, was that it? No, it's gone. Um, Then it's a lot of suffering. But if you practice more with that sense of, of wonderment, of delight, of confidence that, yes, we have this capacity, let's see how it unfolds. It may be mysterious, it may not suit our, our linear thinking, but really give yourself over to the exploration, then it can be really a lot of fun. 
So I would urge you in this retreat to have fun. It's its own special kind of fun. And look as normal as you can walking on the road. But other than that, so much depends on the, the quality of our being, what we're bringing to the practice. And if you can suspend judgment for a week, it'd be, first of all, an unusual week. And also, uh, this is the kind of practice that it is quite mysterious. And often we don't know what's happening as it's happening. It takes some time for the evolution of it. When we first moved in here 26 years ago, we received two letters which were remarkable for how they were addressed. The first was addressed to the Instant Meditation Society, and the second was addressed to the Hindsight Meditation Society. (laughs) And for a long time, I used to look at those envelopes and think, you know, what were they thinking? And for a very long time, I was most charmed by the first, the Instant Meditation Society, because I thought, well, how typical, you know, of our culture that we, sh- we have to have instant gratification or we just discount something as worthless. But these days, actually, I'm quite a bit fonder of the Hindsight Meditation Society <laughs> because a lot of times our experience is just like that. We have to give ourselves over to the practice, to an experience, let it evolve, let it deepen, let it move, let it change. And it's only looking back that we can say, oh, look, something really significant happened. One of my uh, favorite stories about loving-kindness practice happened when we first moved in. Those of us who were here in the beginning decided that we would do a retreat for that first month, even though we had no teachers to guide us. And I had never done formal loving-kindness practice at that time, but I knew how it was done, which will begin tomorrow morning, and that is You begin by offering certain phrases which express the intention of the mind to include, to connect, and so on, toward yourself. And then you move on through these various categories of beings until you come to all beings everywhere. So I thought, okay, I know how to do it. I'll do it. I spent the first week here, all day long, repeating phrases of loving kindness for myself. May I be happy, may I be peaceful. And I felt absolutely nothing. It was like the dreariest week of my life. And something happened to somebody at the end of that week in kind of our larger community in Boston. And several of us had to very unexpectedly leave the retreat. I had to leave along with this group of people. And I was upstairs in one of the bathrooms getting ready to go, kind of in this um, state of shock, you know, of of having to leave the retreat. When I dropped a jar of something on the tile floor... And whatever it was, it shat- the jar shattered and the stuff went all over the floor. And I can remember the very first thought that came up in my mind was, you are really a klutz, but I love you. And I thought, look at that. You could have given me anything in the course of that week of practice and I would, could not have honestly said something was happening, but something was happening. So really in this community that we're forming together here, uh, for this week, let's try to bring some of that that attitude, that spirit, so that we can approach the practice both 
wholeheartedly and really with a, a great sense of delight. And now Miyoshin is going to uh, continue the introduction. In just a moment, we're going to have the opportunity to take the refuges and precepts. So before um, we do that, uh, we're just going to take a moment to hand out chant sheets to those of you who don't have them. So I, too, would like to welcome everybody. As Sharon was talking about how we come to a retreat and we might have different mind states happening, um, different moods, I was looking to see what I felt at being here. And it was really gratitude. It's uh, such a powerful time at the beginning of a retreat when we come together and gather and collect our energy And we all come with some form of wholesome motivation, some expression of our caring in coming here. And I just feel such a great honor and um, joy to be able to come together in this way. In just a few minutes, we will be chanting the refuges and precepts, and I'd just like to say a few words about them before we do so, because I know some of you may be new to them. In chanting the refuges and precepts, it is really a way that we can gather together our energy, collect our attention, and place it upon our intention in being here. That it is a way of expressing something of what our motivation is. Before I go any farther, I'd like to acknowledge that um, the first time I went on a retreat and it got to the point of chanting the refuges and precepts, I had just this feeling inside, like, get me out of here. I didn't want to belong to another thing I didn't want to put on another coat. And just to say that 
the refuges and precepts to me really aren't a putting on of something. You know, they aren't blanketing over. They are what helps us to turn our minds towards that which is a refuge in our lives. And I'm sure we all realize how important it is to have refuge in life. That without it, it's frightening, it's scary, it's painful. And often in our lives, what we've done is taken refuge in that which is unreliable, that which is subject to change, that which can't be counted on all the time. You know, we might take refuge in career, relationship, uh, accumulating money, having possessions. And anything can happen at any time. So it forces us to look deeper into what it is we can take refuge in, what it is we can place our hearts upon. The Buddha talked about how there was three places we could find refuge. We could take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And I will take a moment to describe each of these. Taking refuge in the Buddha. For some people, this can be taking refuge in the historical man that lived over 2,500 years ago and inquired so deeply into his own suffering that he found a way to be free of suffering. He found the path to freedom. And then through his life, continued to share what he had found. It can be that in remembering this man who lived, that we are reminded of our own potential. That it was never something he spoke of as being only possible for him. But that is possible for each of us. For each of us to find the roots of suffering in our own mind and to be liberated from this suffering. For some of us, we may look at taking refuge in the Buddha as taking refuge in the awakened mind or the potential of the awakened mind that lies within each of us. We can also see it as taking refuge in the qualities that the awakened mind embodies, qualities such as wisdom, compassion, metta, equanimity. Taking refuge in the Dharma, that can be seen as taking refuge in the truth or the lawfulness of life, that things are unfolding according to natural law, can also be seen as taking refuge in the teachings, the teachings which point to the way things are. When we take refuge in the Dharma, it helps us to surrender to this process, surrender to this body 
mind experience unfolding just as it is. Taking refuge in the Sangha, it too has a number of different meanings. The first meaning can be to take refuge in all those who have walked this path before us who have become fully liberated. It reminds us of the potential again, of what is possible. It can also be a taking refuge in all of the monks and nuns who ordained and over the time, the course of time, since the time of the Buddha, have dedicated their life to carrying forth these teachings and this practice. It can also be seen as a group of like-minded people coming together to do this practice and to hear the teachings. In this we come together, we take refuge in our intention in coming here and the nobleness of that intention. I once heard a description of taking refuge in the Sangha as um, the Sangha being the living stream through which the Dharma comes to us. That this is really uh, teachings that have been passed on through heart to heart for many, many years and are very much alive, living teachings. So taking refuge is turning our minds towards that which is trustworthy, that which is reliable. And then we will be chanting the precepts. The precepts are five training guidelines that the Buddha gave to help anyone who wants to live a happy and peaceful life. They're really quite simple guidelines, as you'll hear as we go through them. What they help to do is to lay a foundation in our life for our own discovery of awakening. That they become the basis, the foundation of which this can happen from. It's very easy to see in one way, in that, you know, if we, all of the precepts are based upon living a life of non-harming. If in our lives we continue to perpetuate suffering by harming either ourselves or others, then when we come to sit on our meditation cushion, we very quickly see how memories of our actions will arise, how it becomes very difficult to concentrate. It becomes very difficult to stay in the present moment when we're caught in states of guilt, anxiety, worry. And yet if we arrive on our cushion with a contentment about how we live our life, 
provides that foundation, that basis. You know, we can see it just in being here. IMS, um, you know, many people comment upon how safe it feels here. And that safety really comes through the fact that as we live here as a group, we take on these precepts. And, you know, it would be a very different retreat if we were sitting here and at the end of a retreat and we've gotten agitated, or at the end of a sitting, we've been agitated with our neighbor who was kind of wiggling and squiggling, and so we just reached over and hit them. You know? Or if when you left this meditation hall and you went to get your shoes, you discovered that someone had taken them. And you know, had to go chasing after your shoes. Be a very different retreat if we spoke harsh words to another person. But because we all undertake precepts in living, in being here, it helps us to have our harmonious atmosphere in which to do this very delicate work. It provides that sense of safety and refuge. So the first precept is to refrain from killing, to refrain from taking life. On one level, you know, it may be that we're not about to murder our neighbor. But there's, this precept gets extended beyond living beings, beyond human beings, into living beings. And there's all forms of life around us. And what the precept directs us towards is having a reverence for all life, to be able to open our hearts to all forms of life. Sometimes through this precept we begin to see where we draw our boundaries, that it may be that we're perfectly fine not harming human beings, but you know, in a, on a hot summer's night and we're laying in bed and we've just drifted off and then suddenly there's a mosquito buzzing in our ear. It becomes a little bit harder to uphold this precept. You know, it's hard for us to stay with maybe painful states in the mind, agitation, anxiety. And instead, we will just take that life in a moment, often not thinking anything of it. So the precept helps us to have an awareness of what our actions and how we relate to the world around us. The second precept is to refrain from stealing or taking that which has not been freely offered. Again, it may be that on one level that we may not find ourselves so prone to stealing the big things in life, but may have little habits where we assume or feel entitled to taking something which we're not quite sure is for us. Uh, I remember one such incident for myself when I was actually sitting in a retreat here. It was a number of years ago. And at one point during the retreat, I had decided to stay up all night. And at that time, I was sitting on a bench. And at about 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, my bench started to get really, really hard. And it just so happened that the person in front of me often sat on a piece of foam that was about three inches thick. 
And so as the night was going on, and I was getting sore and sore, that piece of foam in front of me was becoming more and more tempting. And at one point I did actually um, decide, there was nobody in the hall. You know, I thought, okay, it's fine, I'll take it, I'll sit on it. So I'm sitting on this piece of foam on my bench, and suddenly there's footsteps coming into the hall. (laughs) I think you know the rest of the story. (laughs) It was really true. It was the person who sat in front of me. And, you know, she didn't come in and sit right down. She went to the back of the hall and went to the area that has all the little pieces of foam. um, And she started frantically going through that. And, you know, at at some point, I had to turn and see if it was her. And yes, it was. And then, what do I do? So you can see what happens to my own meditation in this moment. What do I do? I'm in turmoil. And I think, well, I have to go give it to her. So I go, tap her on the shoulder, hand it to her. Her face lights up. And I go back and I sit down. And this is where I really learned about the foundation. Because I sat down and I was in turmoil. Should I write a note? Should I apologize? What should I do? No, we're in silence. I didn't know what to do. And this didn't go on just for that sitting. It went on for days. <laughs> and even at the end of the retreat, I had to go up and say, I'm so sorry. <laughs> you know, so it really showed me something, how these little moments where we're just assuming, you know, we might take something, um, not being quite sure. This precept also points our minds towards the cultivation on, of non-greed. No, where we aren't always putting ourselves first. That we learn to take into account uh, the world around us. The third precept is to refrain from sexual misconduct. During a retreat, we actual, actually change this precept to, be, to refrain from sexual activity. We do this because sexual energy is a very powerful force in our lives. And when we aren't aware of it, we can be run by it and not even realize it. It causes a lot of suffering in the world. You know, it can be anywhere from rape, child abuse, uh, manipulating others through our sexual energy, flirtation that can sometimes end up with somebody being hurt, not understanding what had been happening. So it becomes important that we learn how to be aware of our sexual energy so that we don't have to act out upon it, but can make wise choices in our life so that we aren't causing others to be in painful states such as jealousy, um, fear, shame. So we, by refraining from any sexual activity, it allows us the opportunity to learn to be present to this energy and not have to act upon it every time it arises to be able to make those wise choices. The fourth precept is to refrain from false speech. That can be speech that is harmful, hurtful, 
speech that is frivolous, harsh, gossip, or lies. I'm sure we're all probably quite aware of how, uh, how easy it is to say something that hurts somebody in a moment when we're not present, in a moment when we simply say whatever pops into our minds. Often in our lives we find ourselves cleaning up after those moments. So by learning to pay attention to our speech, it helps us to alleviate suffering in the world through not saying things that hurt or harm another. The Buddha talked about how we can, uh, with wise speech, say things that are both true and useful. How In this culture, anyways, often we can get uh, into a mind state where we think it's really important to speak our truth. And it can be very important to speak our truth. But oftentimes we don't pay attention to whether or not this is useful, to whether or not this will engender harmony and unity. So I found these guidelines of speaking that which is both true and useful, very, very helpful in my own life. During a retreat, we expand, or it happens, that um, right speech becomes noble silence. That in support of the work that we're doing here, we shift into what is called noble silence. This is where, during this time, uh, we're asked to let go of needing to share our experience with other people around us and to simply be with our own experience, to be silently with ourselves. This is often a great gift that we give ourselves. I know for many people in coming to their first retreat, it can feel very daunting to think of not speaking any, to anyone for a week or two weeks, however long you might be here. It can feel quite terrifying. And yet, many people at the end of the retreat often express how the silence alone was so healing and so helpful. I mean, just, just to think how much in our lives we spend thinking of what we're going to say, thinking of what we've said, um, comparing ourselves to others through our speech. And in this time, we can simply be with ourselves. Just to mention, too, that this includes... Uh, note writing, so refraining from writing notes to each other. Also to refrain from um, eye contact or um, sign language. You know, there may be the occasion on your yogi job where something is needing to be expressed, uh, doing so with great care, remembering that those around us are in silence too. Of course, there is always the opportunity, if there's an emergency, to go to the office or to write a note to one of the teachers. But I'd really like to encourage you to um, 
really take noble silence to heart. I recently taught a retreat where there was a number of new people and one person um, not being used to noble silence at one point in the retreat says, says to me, does noble silence mean that we can't say good morning? And <laughs> yes, it means we refrain from saying good morning. And to say too that it doesn't have to be grim and severe, that we can settle into a natural silence a light-hearted silence. Letting the world around us become still, quiet. The fifth precept is to refrain from the use of intoxicants. Intoxicants cloud the mind, dull the mind. Often when the mind is dull and cloudy, will be times when we will do harmful acts to ourselves or others. The work that we're doing here is really to support clarity and understanding. So the use of intoxicants can have a way of undermining the work that we're doing. Just to say that um, this precept does not refer to any medication that you may be taking. So if you're on some form of medication, please continue on with it. So all of these precepts point towards a life of non-harming, living with reverence for all life. They help us to realize that our words, our actions have an effect and that we don't live in a vacuum. So we can learn to take care with what we do, what we say, so that it can, our lives can be an expression of our deepest aspirations of heart and mind. So now we'll do as is traditionally done at the beginning of Vipassana retreats. We will be chanting tonight. Um, you'll see where the refuges and precepts are on one side, metas on the other. We'll be doing the refuges and precepts in Pali, which is the language that goes back to the time of the Buddha. I have loved to chant in Pali myself because, one, it's a resonant language, and the other is that when I have traveled to other countries, it is also a common language for people who do this type of practice. And so it is a way that we can join our voices together. We'll begin with the preliminary homage, which is the Namo Tassa, And it's chanted three times. We will do it the first time in the form of call and response. And then because it's repetitious, we will do the following two lines all together. When we come to the refuges, we will chant the first stanza as call and response. 
And then when it comes to the following two stanzas, we will chant them together as it also has repetition. When we come down to the precepts, we will again go back to call and response. Does that seem clear? Namo tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambudasa Namo tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Buddhang Saranang Gachami Buddhang Saranang Gachami Dhammang Saranang Gachami Dhammang Saranang Gachami Sangam Saranang Gachami Sangam Saranang Gachami Dutiyampi Buddhang Saranang Gachami Dutiyampi Dhammang Saranang Gachami Dutiyampi Sangam Saranang Gachami Tatiyampi Buddhang Saranang Gachami Tatiyampi Dhammang Saranang Gachami Tatiyampi Sangam Saranang Gachami Panatipata Veramani Sikaparam Samariyami Adina Dana Veramani Sikaparam Samariyami Abramacharya Veramani Sikaparam 
samariyami Musawada Veramani Sikaparam Samariyami Sura Maria Majapamadatana Veramani Sikaparam Samariyami Idam me silam Magafalanyanasa Pachayo Hotu So in just two minutes, we're going to have a short sitting together. So if you'd like to stand up and stretch your body for a moment, I'd like to ask you to all stay here. We won't be sitting for long this evening. Um, We'll have a short sitting tonight, and um, then the opportunity to go and to take rest. The wake-up bell tomorrow will be a little bit different, in that it will be... Rung at 6.15, uh, with breakfast at 6.45, and the first sitting in here will be at 8.30, where we'll give further instruction. So if you want to stand for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.